Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ah, the modern calculator. It's helped us build the atomic bomb. It's taken us to the moon. And for some of us, has assisted with the fiendishly difficult maths problem that is splitting the bill at a restaurant. And of course, for some of us, for writing rude words on. However, there was once a time when the humble calculator or even written numbers didn't exist. We had to rely on fingers and toes and sticks and stones as our counting device. Hello, welcome once again to Patented, a podcast all about the history of invention from History Hit with me, Dallas Campbell. Thank you very much for your company. Today, we are exploring the invention of the calculator. How did we go from counting on our fingers and toes to calculators that can handle scientific functions in fields such as trigonometry and physics and chemistry and engineering and all that kind of stuff? Well, I'm joined by Keith Houston author of the book Empire of the Sum, nice title, The Rise and Reign of the Pocket Calculator for a Calculated History of the Device that Ushered in Modern Mathematics. Welcome back to the show, Keith. Lovely to have you back. I've only just finished your last book, book. We did an episode on the invention of the book, and you wrote a book called Book. And lo and behold, a week later, you've written another blooming book, Empire of the Sum. Clever. Thank you. Clever title, The Rise and Reign of the Pocket Calculator. Here's the thing. I didn't know I was a pocket calculator buff until I started reading your book. And now I'm obsessed to the point where last night I went down an eBay rabbit hole looking to find what I really wanted was the, and you write about it, it's the Pulsar time computer calculator watch circa 1976. And I found one and I really want to buy it, but it's over a grand. They were expensive at the time as well. Yeah. It's like, I think $4,000 or something. It was more than a car. For the very yeah, first like ones, although they were in 18 karat gold, I guess. But I remember, I can't remember where I was. I must have been six or seven. And I remember seeing in a shop a calculator watch. And I thought, whatever happens in life, I know we've kind of pinnacled as a civilization the fact that we can now have a, a calculator and a watch. I thought that was pretty big news. I remember that as well. Casio calculator watches were a big deal when I was a kid. I never got one. It's a really weird phenomenon, the idea of taking two electronic devices and just sticking them together. Like, there's not a huge amount of synergy between a watch and a calculator, except that they both have to show you numbers. And yet, Casio thought this was a good idea. Well, actually, I guess Pulsar thought this was a good idea. It's, it, that's really interesting. But I remember when the iPhone came out, or I guess sort of smartphones generally, or well, phones with cameras. Mm. I was like, well, what's the connection between a phone and a camera? Like, why would those two things go together? There's no connection between taking pictures and talking to people. I remember that was an odd kind of thing at the time. And now, of course, it's totally normal. I guess someone had an insight that what do you always have on you? And the answer is your phone. 
So why not stick a calculator on it? That, in a sense, I think there's a, God, synergy is a horrible word, but there's a synergy between the usefulness of those two things. And when's a camera useful? When you have it. When is a phone yeah. useful? When you have it. I don't remember ever having that need of like having a camera with me at all times. Or certainly we didn't back in the day. It was, if you wanted to take pictures, you'd go and get your camera and take a picture. It wasn't a kind of an everyday thing because you had to take them to boots and get them developed. But then I think we probably would have found it hard to imagine why a smartphone would be useful. Why do I need access to the internet the whole time? And now we just do. This kind of goes back to calculators. I do wonder if that's one of the reasons why they kind of went away to some extent. Like, you know, the calculator helps the computer come into existence or home computers. And then it's so much more versatile. It's so much more powerful and flexible. Eventually, the calculator just kind of ends up in classrooms and like office drawers. And that's about it. Yeah. Does anyone use... Well, people do use calculators because my daughter is doing her math GCSE at the moment and she has a calculator. It's a Casio calculator. But I certainly remember in the 1980s, like they were a thing, calculators. They were kind of desirable. Like the more buttons you had on it, the Casio scientific calculator. The greatest calculator of them all was the Casio VL Tone. Do you know this? A long white bar and it's a synthesizer keyboard with black and white keys. You can play tunes on it. My friend Will had one. And we were in a band and he used it on stage. The only band that's jumping to mind, I think, actually, no, the Human League used a VL Tone. Did so they? Elastica at one point. Casio actually then released a follow-up so that the VL Tone looked like a synthesizer. It looked like a little keyboard. Yeah. The VL80, yeah. which came out just a couple of years later, looked like a calculator, but was also a synthesizer. So you could play it with the calculator buttons. That's awesome. Yeah, Kraftwerk released a branded version to go with their single, Pocket calculator. I love the fact that the pocket calculator has this great cultural, it is wrapped in this in music and art and all kinds of interesting yumminess. And, or certainly it had. I do wonder if what your daughter thinks about calculators, you know, is it this weird thing? It's like, what is this terrible version of a phone that is yeah. not useful? She has no interest in it whatsoever. I think it's just lies there broken because, of course, she's too busy on snappity chat. And those sorts mm. of things, like the pocket calculator. I'm like trying to expound her the, the virtues of going down eBay rabbit holes looking at vintage <laughs> calculators. She just thinks I'm a bit odd. I went down a similar slide rule rabbit hole. Before I started, as a child of the calculator age, I had the, the same reaction to slide rules as I was writing the book. What yeah. on earth is this for? Why would I want this? And now I find myself with a small collection of slide rules from eBay. And my father-in-law likes to troll antique shops and send them to me. Well, that's a good place to start, I think. I'm I'm going to quote from your book, Keith, if that's okay. The Empire State Building, the Hoover Dam, the Golden Gate Bridge owe their existence to it. So to the Spitfire, the steam train, Sputnik and the atomic bomb. Sailors navigated with it, bombardiers bombed with it, and tax collectors calculated with it. It took us to the bottom of the ocean. It took us to the surface of the moon for generations of engineers, mathematicians, and scientists. The slide rule was the pocket calculator. Should we start there? We can go even further back, because, of course, in your book, you start with a bone with notches on, the a, a monkey's femur or some kind of animal's femur. So your book, just before we do start, it's not just about calculus. It's about this idea of adding things up and how that's changed over time and how technology has improved. Um, the slide rule, of course, we had for a long time. We're going to spend a bit of time on that. But let's just start with a monkey's femur. Yeah, it's a baboon femur. It's called the Lebombo bone. It was found in a cave in South Africa. And it just has a bunch of notches kind of cut across it. And they appear to have been cut with different tools. So it's not just a decoration. Someone has gone back to this and added a certain number of notches later in order to keep track of some sort of quantity. No one knows what number it's recorded, but 
it does appear to have been used to record a number. So it's like one of the first records of someone or some group of people needing to keep track of some quantity. It's the first instance of recorded counting, I guess. It's the kind of first Casio, but that would be amazing if it had Casio carved in it. Sadly not. (laughs) (laughs) I read somewhere, and it may be nonsense, the fact that they had 29 notches on, of course, it was like, oh, well, 29, that's to do with the lunar phases or it's to do with the menstrual cycle and all kinds of speculation. Is that true or is that? I think it's speculation, but I mean, it's not, it doesn't sound unreasonable. Uh, I'm not an anthropologist, so I can't say for sure, but yeah. Wait, you're not an anthropologist. Get him off. (laughs) (laughs) So the human counting, it's a pretty human thing. Like humans from the beginning of being human needed to count things. It's an odd thing, isn't it? Well, I suppose other creatures, and you point out COVIDs and birds and and other animals count as well. We like to tally things. Why do we like to do that? I guess it's useful. I mean, I must admit, I have trouble understanding why a crow might need to count, but certainly they can. Lots of birds have been shown to be able to count. Ants can count in that they can remember. Yeah. So the way that this has been established is that they can find their way through a maze and they can go back and tell their other ant friends how to find their way through the maze. And really the only way to do that is to recount how many junctions you need to go past before turning. So in some way they're able to count, possibly it's distance, but then distance is just counting maybe footsteps or there is Mm -hmm. definitely some need in the animal world to be able to count. So ants can count in a sense, some spiders can count, even fish can count. They can look at groups of fish and they can very accurately for small numbers tell which one is bigger. If you have 10 fish, it needs to be significantly larger than another group before they can tell the difference. But if you're looking at groups of two or three fish, then they can say, no, this is the bigger one. I want to join them. This idea of counting on base 10, Mm. you make the point that it's interesting that, you know, we've got sort of 10 fingers and that's why we do that. But then other cultures count 20 or five or other cultures add their genitalia to the counting tally and basically kind of body parts of sort of abacuses of the day. Yeah, it looks like that's how we got started with being able to record concrete numbers in a kind of reliable way. I'm going to use one hand or two hands or Mm. my hands and feet. And yeah, there's one particular group of people on, I think they live in Papua New Guinea, who conventionally add their testicles and their penis. I always do. Yeah, I do that. <laughs> you, can, you can also count up to 33 <laughs> with it. Yeah. Actually, while we're on the subject of that, just thinking about calculators and our obsession with writing rude words mm. on calculators and you turn them upside down and you've written boobs, Indeed. that kind of thing. That's the classic but lost on generations, I think. But yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Yeah, we started counting using body parts. And this seems to have been quite common across what people would have called primitive peoples, which is not a very kind way of putting it. But certainly back in the 19th century, when people were getting interested in this, what's the linguistic basis of our counting systems? It tends to go back to human anatomy. But then it looks like the Sumerians, who invented writing more or less, right? They were indeed. They had a base 60 mechanism for counting. And the theory is that cuneiform numbers were based directly on the shape of little clay tokens that were used to represent quantities before they started writing. So they might have a token that says this is a certain amount of barley or this is a certain number of days labor. It appears that they were using these tokens in a base 60 way. They tended to represent numbers even before the Mesopotamians or the Sumerians were writing, they were counting in base 60. And the theory is that you've got 12 knuckles on the fingers of one hand, you've got five digits on the other hand. So if I use one of the fingers or one of my fingers or my thumb to point to a knuckle, that's 60 distinct positions. So I can count to 60 using my hands. The theory is that this is where the base 60 counting system came from. So the Sumerians would tend to count, you know, one is the, obviously, 
ones and then 60s and then 3,600s in the same way that we counted ones, tens, 100s, and so on. So they had this very sophisticated counting system. But later, then you get to the classical period, actually the, the ancient Egyptians, and then on into Greece and Rome. And it's the Middle Ages. There seemed to be another counting system. It seemed that people could count up to 10,000 at least on their fingers. And no one really knew if this was actually true or not. There were lots of pictures of, let's say, farmers or traders in Egypt holding up their fingers in ways that seemed to suggest that they were trying to convey something, some sort of quantity. And then you get the same thing in Rome. There were particular little tokens they were given to poor people. They could exchange them for money or for grain rations. And on the back of them, they had hands. They had Roman numerals on one side and they had hands on the other side making these little gestures, you know, one finger held up or two fingers held up or fingers held to your palm and so on. And those appear to correspond directly. So the number of the Roman numeral on the front could be represented using your hand as shown on the back. And then eventually someone figured out that the venerable Bede, who was a monk, he wrote, and I'm going to get the date wrong, he wrote a book about how to compute the date of Easter, because this was very important for Christians. The first thing he says in this book is, okay, before we get on to the calculation of the date of Easter, I'm going to teach you how to count with your fingers. And he goes on to explain in exacting detail how you can count up to 9,999 with just your fingers. So, And it turns out that the numbers that he describes actually make sense in the context of all of these other things that are mentioned throughout history. So this one counting system seems to have lasted for thousands of years. How do you count to 10,000 on your fingers? Like You don't have enough knuckles. Like What's the Oof, um, plus you've got to add your willy? And Hey, I just suddenly realised every time you see someone scrawled a willy and balls on the wall, they're probably just counting. <laughs> it's just as three. It's probably maths. Yeah. Sorry, I've interrupted you. <laughs> not at all, not at all. So we're talking about the Venerable Bede and counting up to 10,000. If I remember rightly, he used two fingers. So if you imagine your, your pinky and your ring finger, you yep. start by bending your pinky down and leaving your ring finger up. Okay. That means one particular number. And then I think you extend your pinky and you bend your ring finger down. It oh, also depends on how far you bend it down. If you touch, oh, okay. you know, if you touch the top of your palm, it means one thing. If you touch the bottom, it means another one and so on. So you need two fingers to count to 10. If you throw in another three digits, you get to 100. Another two, God, you get to 1,000. And another three, you get up to 10,000. I tell you what, the venerable Bede would have loved the Casio calculator watch. If he'd had one of those, he'd be like, get in. It would have made it a lot easier to calculate the date of Easter, yeah. So fingers and body parts, love that. That's counting. Then we get into things like abacuses which we're all familiar with, kind of beads on things that you can suddenly do a lot. Actually, an abacus, you can do quite complicated calculations on an abacus, because suddenly you've got a lot more flexibility. And You can. There was a, an interesting episode at the end, I think 1947, so just after the Second World War, in Japan, an American soldier and a Japanese postman effectively had a competition, uh, a kind of mathematics competition. They had tasks or they had little matches related to addition, subtraction, multiplication, and addition. And the American soldier had an electric calculator. So a calculator that used... In 1940... 1947. Okay. Not a pocket calculator. Though. Oh, no. It's about the size of a typewriter. Okay. And it used gears to record okay. numbers got effectively. It, it, so it. it's a mechanical calculator driven by an electric motor. Mm, got it. And his opponent, this Japanese postman, used an abacus. And the Japanese guy won three out of four matches. I think it was only division or multiplication, where the calculator was faster than him with his abacus. And it was because he was so used to it, because he'd internalised all of these shortcuts to mm. using the abacus to make it possible to use it, and as you say, in quite sophisticated ways. And I think, was it Sharp? 
as late as like 1970, the late 1970s, the early 1980s, in Japan, they released a calculator which was attached to an abacus. So in the spirit of sticking calculators together with other random things, this wasn't random. This was, how do you want to count? Well, you can choose which one you want to use. So the abacus has this wow. really strong hold, or yeah. has had this really strong hold almost since it was invented. Is there such a thing as the first abacus? We found the first sort of counting notches on a bit of bonobo bone. Is there a first abacus? Like So, yes, this is quite tricky. There are written works, well, there are Mesopotamian tablets that suggest that something like an abacus, I mean, what's an abacus? It's a tool that you can use to count or add or subtract and generally manipulate numbers using some sort of token. You know, you have a token that might represent one or two or three, and you can move them around to do stuff. In the West, we often used what were called counting boards. These are effectively abacuses with just loose pebbles or other tokens. You have a bunch of lines on a piece of wood or a piece of paper, and you can put tokens on them to represent different numbers and move them around, which is very much like an abacus, except that your tokens are beads and they're strung onto you know, threads or wires. We know that counting boards, or we think that counting boards, have been around for potentially thousands of years, like you know, three to 4,000 years. Abacuses with wires, where you have these beads confined in some way, they seem to be, I think, like 200 CE or so is the first concrete description of one. Even then, it's a bit woolly. And the text was revised about, I think, six or 700 years later to make it much more explicit that, yes, we are talking about an abacus here. And this was in China. So this was uh, a book called the Shu Shu Ji Yi. I've just murdered the pronunciation. That's okay. They don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> That's what editing is for. <laughs> so, yeah. We'll drop in a, a perfectly pronounced voice oh, over thank that you. and yes. everyone will very be very kind. impressed. And so there are written accounts of what look like abacuses, which are, you know, sort of, let's say, 1900 years old or thereabouts. But it also looks as though the Romans made something very much like it, only they didn't write anything about it at all. There are no written sources at all for the Roman abacus, and there's no physical evidence for the Chinese abacus, but they both seem to come from around about the same time. So the Romans had little brass plates with slots in them, and they had these little buttons or beads that you could slide up and down in the slots. It's not really clear who got there first. I mean, once someone describes an abacus to you, you can replicate it quite quickly. So either the idea of the Roman abacus travelled east or the idea of the Chinese abacus travelled west. And it's not really clear who actually had developed it in the first place. So we've got abacuses. Mm-hmm. I want to get to the slide rule because that really mm-hmm. interesting story said, but before we do that, and you mentioned this idea of mechanical calculators. I mean, in your book, you talk about going all the way back to the sort of 1600s and Johannes Kepler and, and people like that. Why did we need mechanical adding devices and who made them? That's a really good question. The question goes all the way back to that bone or to these tokens. It's like, why do we need this at all? And I guess the answer is, it's a pain to have to remember numbers and it's a pain to have to add them together so or to subtract them or to multiply them. And then you realise that multiplication is just adding something over and over again. If you can build an adding machine, then you've effectively built a multiplication machine as well. So we've always had this desire to do it, but there seemed to be a bit of a moment in sort of the 17th century where clockwork became a thing. This is when René Descartes was messing around with these automatons, the duck that sort the of... The duck that uh, pooped. Yes. We did a robot episode, and I think we talked about the famous pooping robot duck. Yeah. Was it Descartes? I, I think Descartes talked about the idea of... Automatons. Yeah, you know, if they're mm. indistinguishable from humans, are they alive, that sort of thing. Descartes, uh, listeners, as you know, philosopher, I think, therefore I am. Dualism, body-soul differential... That Descartes. It's interesting you should mention that because one of the main 
proponents of mechanical adding machines was Blaise Pascal, who is famous for Pascal's wager. You know, mm. if God exists, then you basically, you should believe in him because uh, there's no harm if he doesn't. But if he does exist and you don't believe him, that's bad for you. He was a bit of a polymath. He ended up, he became very religious towards the end of his life. But before that, he was a very strong mathematician. And he did a lot of work to do with pressure as well, air pressure. He theorized the existence of vacuum. He had his brother take a barometer to the top of a mountain and he gave another one to a monk at the bottom of a mountain and they measured the difference in pressure. And he realized they were different the higher you went. And he thought eventually you will reach a point where there is no air at all. There's no pressure. Descartes didn't believe him. He said that he had too much vacuum in his head. So Pascal, his dad was a tax collector. Sorry, just, just winding, <laughs> just popping the stack a few times Stop. until we get back. <laughs> Pascal's dad was a tax collector and Pascal wanted to help. He thought, I will build a machine that can add and subtract and it will help my dad track the numbers as he figures out how much taxes owed by whom and so on. So he decided to build it and it kind of worked. Tell us what it looked like. Was it kind of crank handily, lots of cogs, lots of, was there a screen? How did we get a number? There were boxes of varying different sizes. Imagine a sort of a large, going to hold up the Chicago manual of style that sits beside my computer. Imagine something about that size. Such a hipster. <laughs> the publisher makes me do it. So imagine that a little bit bigger with some dials on the front. And each dial represents a number from zero to nine. Okay. And with a little stylus, you would kind of rotate these dials to the number that you want. And there was a little readout just above them that tracked the accumulated value. And as you push the dials round, that would make the little dial above it accumulate the number. And if you went from nine to zero, it would then carry over to the next one and then to the next one and then to the next one and to the next one. So you could add, for example, one to 9,999 yeah. and suddenly your dials will tick over from one to zero, 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 zero. Step back in time with me, Tristan Hughes, on the Ancients from History hit as we unearth Pompeii's buried secrets in a special mini-series. You'll discover what life was like in this town before the eruption of Vesuvius, the bustling streets, the roar of the gladiators, and the hidden lives of sex workers. Lost for over 1,500 years and then uncovered, Pompeii's saga continues. With the help of leading experts, we'll bust myths and reveal startling new research so get ready for a dramatic journey through the echoes of the past. Experience Pompeii like never before on the Ancients from History hit. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. A mechanical calculator makes sense. If you think about a cog, it has a certain number of teeth on it. So 
the idea of using those and turning them to add up makes sense. Presumably you can't turn it upside down and it spells a rude word, which is obviously a massive <laughs> drawback in the 17th century. Surely you century. can, if you can add up to, uh, let me think, 58008. But it might be too big and heavy and cumbersome. Well, you could stand on your head and, and rotate go, yourself. Oh, look, it says boobless. <laughs> so he built this machine, and actually it was mostly successful in that it worked. But he seemed to lose interest in it. He applied for a monopoly for a patent that said it's important that I be given time to fully develop this. And having got that, he then just stopped developing it and kind of gave up on it, which is obviously why monopolies are bad. And that was kind of as far as it went. So he he may have been inspired by a German guy called Wilhelm Schickard who developed a similar thing earlier. That one had a problem in that it couldn't carry very large numbers. It relied on a gear. As you said, gears can have different numbers of teeth. His one relied on a gear with a single tooth that as he went from nine to zero would turn over all of the other dials. And the load was just too great. He could only have, I think, six digits before it just wouldn't work. So Pascal had a better carrying mechanism, but even so, it's just a bit too finicky. He couldn't, I'm not sure if he really tried to manufacture it as such, but they became the same sorts of like trinkets and devices that rich people liked, all these clockwork things, you know, the, the ducks that would waddle along or animals that would take a glass of wine to someone at the table. Yeah, like you say, it's that fascination with clockwork things in the 17th century, mm. I suppose, just became really de rigueur, as it were. Yeah, It was the engineering that sort of stumped the calculator, as it were, who could engineer the best actual bit of machinery. It was exactly that. Should we do a bit of a, a leap from mechanics to slide rules? Because this is an amazing thing. That was kind of parallel. So there was, as I said, there was this need or there was a desire to be able to add or to multiply. Now, the thing is, you know, addition is not necessarily super difficult. If you have a pen and paper, addition is easy enough. Multiplication gets a bit more painful, especially if you're doing large or very precise multiplications or divisions. I still can't do long division. Anyway, carry on. I've forgotten so much about maths. Oh, God. I was trying to do it with my daughter the other day. I was like, crikey, how the hell does that work? Yeah. In fact, we talked about writing last time around and how people worried that writing would cause people to you know, make their memories worse because you can write something down and forget it. The calculator has done exactly that to me. It's absolutely destroyed my ability to do simple maths. And that was a big worry in the 1970s. But anyway, you can always get back to that. For our listeners of a certain age who are maybe not familiar with slide rules, I, I'm totally familiar with slide rules. I remember using a slide rule back in the day. Just describe what a slide rule looks like so we've got a, an image in our mind. Sure. So a slide rule looks a bit like a ruler, like your standard sort of 30 centimetre or foot long ruler. And most slide rules seem to have been made of either plastic or things like wood or bamboo. And they will have a bunch of scales along them. So it looks initially very much like a ruler with numbers and sort of tick marks all along its length. But the middle section can slide, so you can realign these scales with one another. And it turns out that two of the scales are what are called logarithmic. So a ruler has got a linear scale. Each pair of numbers is exactly the same distance apart. So if I look at zero and one on a ruler, and then I look at one and two, those two pairs of numbers are exactly the same distance apart. A logarithmic scale, the numbers get closer and closer together the higher up you go. So zero and one are quite far apart. One and two are a bit closer. Two and three are even closer. And by the time you get up to nine and 10, they're very close together indeed. It turns out that logarithms are useful for multiplication. This is where it starts to get quite difficult to describe. If you have a set of numbers that increase by some defined value, let's say 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, that's called an arithmetic progression. Every number is the same as the one before plus some added thing. 
if you have a geometric progression, every number is multiplied by the same. So 1, 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, and so on. That's called a geometric progression. And if you put these two things together, you write your arithmetic progression in a line, and then you write your geometric progression immediately underneath it. It's possible to multiply any two values in the geometric progression by adding the corresponding values in the arithmetic progression. So let's say I want to multiply 2 and 4. My geometric progression goes 1, 2, 4. My arithmetic progression goes 1, 2, 3. This is where it gets really quite complicated. This is not suited to radio. I'm a bit lost, but I'm enjoying it. I'm just enjoying listening. <laughs> the listeners are cleverer than me, so they'll understand. So carry on. It is gallingly difficult to explain this. So I've got my geometric progression and my arithmetic progression together. If I find the corresponding numbers from the geometric progression in the arithmetic progression, so I just look up. I look up from 2 and I find that corresponds to 2. I look up from 4 and I find that corresponds to 3. I add 2 and 3 together and I get 5. And if I move along to number 5 in my arithmetic progression and I jump down into my geometric progression, I find that that's 8. I've multiplied 2 and 4 together to get 8 without actually having to do any multiplication. And although that does not work well describing it, if you're a mathematician with a book of these tables, it suddenly becomes possible to multiply with addition only. This was a big deal when you had to otherwise do multiplication manually. I mentioned at the beginning, basically, that the entire 20th century was engineered using slide rules. All the miracles of mm. the 20th century, moon landings and atomic weapons yeah. and, and such. I mean, how accurate? If you're just moving a bit of bamboo inside mm. another bit of bamboo, in terms of things like decimal places, how accurate can you be with something like that? How could we do these incredible measurements? And Yeah, so logarithms are just geometric progressions with lots more numbers in them. That's okay. fundamentally what the innovation was. A slide rule puts two logarithmic scales together and in such a way that it's possible to just add a couple of numbers and very quickly read off your multiplication. And if you do that with one of these 12-inch or 24-inch slide rules, you'll get maybe a few decimal places. That's about as good as it gets. Just quickly as well, just what I remember, Freddie, our producer, and I, we were going to do an episode on Scottish exceptionalism mm. and, and Scottish inventors. It was a Scottish inventor, I think, the slide draw. Am I right? It was, it was somebody, and I forget who it was. Logarithms were invented by a Scottish guy, the Laird of Merkiston in Edinburgh, ah. after whom Napier University is named. It was John Napier. Okay. He was an alchemist because everyone at that point was an alchemist and an astrologer. If you're a scientist, that's pretty much what it meant. That's totally what I am. <laughs> Is this not a, an exceptional Scottish podcast that we're having right now? <laughs> yeah. So he had this need to multiply large numbers. Specifically, he needed to do lots of multiplications of sines and cosines and so on so that he could figure out where stars were, where they were going to move, so that he could predict the future. And so he came up with this idea of logarithms. He devised a mathematical function, an expression that lets you build logarithms, that lets you fill in the gaps in your geometric progression so that I can't just multiply 1, 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, and so on. I can multiply pretty much any number between those values just by looking up a table and doing an addition and then looking up a third value. So he did that, and the mathematical world was extremely excited about this. And suddenly logarithms, books of logarithms became quite common. I remember logarithmic table books. Do I remember that? Or did I dream that? No, that's exactly right. That's just a slide rule in book form, effectively. And then later, a guy called William Uhtred figured out how to line up two logarithmic scales to make the slide rule. So it's kind of a team effort. Napier invented logarithms. A guy called Edmund Gunter started to inscribe the logarithmic scales on wood and then finally... William Uhtred figured out that actually I can slide these two things together to multiply very easily. What would the world look like 
if the slide rule hadn't been invented? Oh, that's a very good question. It would probably look the same because logarithms had been invented, but it would have been just a bit harder to make use of them because you're now flipping through a book of tables as opposed to just whipping out your slide rule from its plastic holster on your belt to do the multiplication. Okay, so we've got the slide rule, which has this suddenly opened up this world of possibility in terms of calculation. And it, as you said, the Hoover Dam and the moon landings happened because of that. When was the first slide rule? I'm just getting my timeline in my brain worked out. I kind of remember the end of slide rules and the beginning of calculators, but when did the slide rule kind of first appear? So logarithms popped up in the, I think, late 16th century, early 18th century. The slide rule itself was, I think, mid-17th century, but then it wasn't super easy to use. So most modern slide rules tend to have the same set of scales, or at least the same basic set of scales. So you can do multiplications between 1 and 10, multiplications between 1 and 100. You can do squares and cubes and so on. And they have a kind of what's called a cursor. So they've got the main bit, the bit that slides to align the scales. And then they have a little transparent window with a line through it that helps you more carefully line things up. That cursor was the final part of the puzzle. And that came about, I think, towards the end of the 19th century or the mid-19th century. And once that was in place, that was invented by a French artilleryman who wanted to do calculations, I guess, to do with um, shooting people. That was pretty much the slide rule was in place. That was the standard mathematical instrument for scientists and engineers, well, until the 1970s, I guess. (laughs) Until I was born. Okay, (laughs) so let's talk about the advent of the digital calculator, the Mm. birth of Casio. We've had mechanical things, handles and cogs. We've got slide rules. Tell me about the first calculator. Who, how, when? There was the computer, right? The scientific world had woken up to the idea that you could build a machine to do this sort of numerical operation, like repeated numerical operations. Code cracking and stuff. Well, exactly, yeah. So Colossus at Bletchley Park was, I think in retrospect, this considers to be one of the first programmable computers. But this was kind of in the air. People were talking about computation, even if they weren't building computers, kind of in the 1930s. That seems to be when it all started to take off. And people who are making computers, people who are, or rather who were sort of moving towards building computers were using relays. A computer is just a collection of switches, fundamentally. It's a whole pile of switches whereby you set inputs by means of switches, and depending on what you do with those inputs, they cascade through other switches and yet more switches and yet more switches until finally you have some result at the end. And so they all use relays, which are like little electromagnets that can open and close another switch. And relay computers were becoming more common in the US in the UK and also Japan. Japan, had obviously, it was a little bit behind. It suffered terribly in the Second World War. And as it sort of ramped up, as it was trying to get back into, I guess, being a modern economy, they started, I think it was that the Tokyo Electrotechnical Laboratory started making relay computers in the 1950s. Parallel to this, there was a family called the Casios. With a K rather than a C. With a K rather than a C and also a SH rather than a S. And they had a little machine shop. And they made a whole pile of random things. They made hot plates. Their most successful product was a ring you could put in your finger that had a cigarette holder attached to it. That's very civilised. Yes. So as you were working, you could smoke a cigarette. And then when you went to baths afterwards to relax, you could smoke another cigarette and keep it out of the water. And this was their like breakthrough product. But the Casio brother, Toshio, who had designed this finger ring, he had heard about this match between the American servicemen and the Japanese postman with their calculator and their abacus. And he was fascinated by the calculator. 
But he knew that Japan didn't really have the capability of making these things, you know, precisely machining the gears, building the motors and so on. And so he had worked in sort of telecommunications and relays were often used to route telephone calls, for example. So he thought, I can build a calculator with relays. I don't need to use gears and motors. I think I can do it using this other technology. Actually, he used solenoids first, which is slightly different. He built an entire calculator of solenoids. It worked and they said, throw it away. We're doing another one. And he rebuilt it in using relays. And this was the first, I guess, digital electric calculator. Is this the Casio 14A? Am I, am I right? Yes, this is the Casio 14A. Okay. First of all, a couple of things. The word Casio went from having a K to a C. So how did that happen? Did they just took the family name and just made it easier to pronounce? I haven't come across a good explanation. Huh. It might just have sounded better or they, th- yeah. Yeah, they thought it was easier to pronounce perhaps for export. And this calculator, the Casio 14A, I mean, it was massive. It wasn't like in your pocket. It was a desk it was ridiculous. Yeah, so it wasn't a pocket calculator. It wasn't a desk calculator and then it fitted on a desk. It was actually It the was desk. a desk, yes. It had about 300-odd relays. There is a museum to Toshio Casio about all of the various different things that he designed. Yeah. There's an excellent video that you can watch of the Casio 14A running, and it has that sort of infinite monkey sound about it. It's just lots of clicking and clacking of all of these relays tapping away as you type numbers in the keypad and the results appear on this little display. If I put two plus two equals, what would the screen look like? So the screen was like a grid of numbers. And so each column represented one position. So, you know, again, this is hard for radio. The, the first column represented one digit and you might have a zero lit up at the bottom or a one or a two or a three or a four. So if I typed in two, then the number two would pop up in that first column. And then if I did plus two, I'd see another two in the same position and my result is four in the same column. And if I do a 10, I see a 1 and then a 0. And then if I do 100, I see a 1 and a 0 and a 0 and so on. It's interesting, actually, how Casio, that name is so synonymous with the calculator and the sort of digital watch. I mean, beyond, I mean, I can't imagine, and well, I suppose Texas Instruments, and you mentioned Sharp earlier mm. on, but Casio really were the kind of giants of the pocket calculator, weren't they? I mean, how do we get from that suddenly everything miniaturized? So from that massive desk size calculator to the pocket calculator, yeah. how did that jump happen? So Casio, or Toshio, Casio had used relays, which are relatively bulky. Again, you know, I, I mentioned computers are just gigantic arrays of switches. So are calculators. So you start with a relay, and then if you want to go faster, you use a vacuum tube which is basically a light bulb with a couple of extra bits inside it. You can use them as amplifiers. You can pass a weak current through and you can then modulate a stronger current. I have one. Yeah, they're very popular for hi-fi or audio enthusiasts. Hipsters, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I didn't want to say that. So (laughs) as people wanted to build faster computers, they tended to move from relays to vacuum tubes. Vacuum tubes are still quite bulky, so they don't really get any smaller. But then finally, the silicon transistor. Well, actually, the semiconductor transistor is invented. A transistor is a tiny little electronic component that's just a switch. You can use one circuit to control the value of another circuit. And suddenly, this is when things really, really shrank. So the first desktop calculator, the first electronic desktop calculator was actually designed in the UK by a firm called Sumlock. And it was called the Anita, which stood for a new inspiration to accounting, apparently or a new inspiration to arithmetic. They don't seem to be able to agree on what it means. And this was about the size of a typewriter. And inside, it was full of vacuum tubes. Actually, I'm saying that they weren't much smaller than relays. They were small enough so that this could be packed into this thing about the size of a typewriter or like a cash register. And 
this was fast. This was around about 1961, and it made all other calculators look old-fashioned, quite literally, because everyone still was still using these mechanical ones. The relay calculator never really took off, I think because it was so big. And presumably slide rules still as well. Not everyone would have a desk-sized calculator in their home. Slide rules, because of all the different scales in them, they were actually a bit more yeah. flexible than just multiplication and division. I want to understand, though, from these massive, and there's a whole slew of big typewriter size calculators, as you mentioned, but I'm interested in the pocket calculator. When did suddenly that revolution start where you could fit one of these in a pocket or on your watch? The two things that happened were the transistor, which is on a tiny bit of silicon or germanium, an element which is somewhat conductive, but not as conductive as a metal. A guy at Texas Instruments in about 1957, I think it was, thought, well, okay, we're making these components on individual little slivers, germanium or silicon, and then we have to wire them up together to make a calculator or a computer. What if I just had all the components on a single bit of silicon? And that's the microchip. It's a single piece of semiconductor material with tens or hundreds or nowadays like billions of components in the one place. And that was the thing that suddenly meant it was possible to build a pocket calculator. So TI had this, they had the microchip and they thought we need to sell this. We don't really have a good gadget for selling it. They'd managed to sell transistors by means of selling transistor radios, but they didn't have a device for this. And apparently the guy who invented the microchip, a guy called Jack Kilby, was on a plane with his boss who ran TI. And his boss said to him, we need something to sell microchips let's come up with an idea. And by the time the flight landed, they had decided that it was going to be a miniaturised calculator. A lot of things happened on planes. We were doing a thing talking about Japan, Japanese pot noodles, instant mm-hmm. ramen. The idea happened on a plane. That's really interesting. So it's interesting that the chip happened before the product. It was like, oh, Christ, we've invented this. How can we use it? Rather than we want to invent this, how can we make it? Yeah. And actually, I guess I missed a bit in that TI, Texas Instruments, invented the chip and then had quite a lucrative line in selling it to the military, who wanted miniaturized electronics to go on things like nuclear missiles. But gradually that sort of tapered off, because once you've got your entire country covered in nuclear missile silos, you don't really need any more chips. So they wanted to broaden the appeal, which is where the pocket calculator then came from. So yeah, absolutely, they arrived at the product in order to sell a different product. You know, as well as obviously, it kind of meant the end of the slide rule. Suddenly you could do very, very precise calculations Mm -hmm. instantly and cheaply and suddenly Mm -hmm. everyone had a calculator. I just want to end by this sort of Mm -hmm. going back to this cultural thing because they became so much part of the cultural landscape, Mm -hmm. the fact that they suddenly would become calculator watches and calculator Mm -hmm. synthesizers and all kinds of things. And they were a sort of status symbol as well, weren't they? And kids loved them and adults loved them and... They were. There was one particular calculator called the HP 35, which is a scientific calculator. Mm. And this seems to have been one of the first electronic devices that had any kind of cache or import. Like people wanted this thing. It was just a calculator, mm. but a lot of thought had gone into the way it looked and the way it worked. And this from a company that made stuff like oscilloscopes and other stuff that would sit around in an electronics lab, kind of out of nowhere, the founder, Bill Hewlett, said, I want to build a calculator. And then he said, I want one 10 times smaller. So they built the calculator to fit on his desk. His engineers built this calculator. They actually had to trim his desk. There was like a drawer that slid out. And he said, I want this calculator to fit in this space for a typewriter. So they had to get a carpenter to surreptitiously make the slot larger in order to fit their prototype. And then having seen the prototype, he almost immediately said, this is great. I want it 10 times smaller, 10 times cheaper, and 10 times faster. And they pretty much did it. That was then the HP 35. And this thing was so staggering. It was just unlike anything that people had seen before. Students were selling their cars in order to buy these things. Even at NASA, they had to lock them in boxes so that people wouldn't come in and just walk away with this $400 calculator. That seems to have been the thing that really 
kicked off the calculator as some sort of status symbol. And maybe it did it for electronics as a whole. I've seen it speculated yeah. that this is why iPhones are cool. This is why computers are cool and so on. What sort of period are we talking? We're talking 1970s now, aren't we? I yeah, guess. that was about 1972. Was that the kind of golden age? That, I mean, I imagine the sort of 70s, 80s, the golden age of the pocket calculator. I would say so. I think you can track the golden age of the pocket calculator by looking at what Casio was doing. So in 1976, Casio, they came out with a calculator called the CQ1, which was a clock and a calculator in the same box. Then the VL1 or VL Tone that we've talked about, the synthesizer plus calculator, was 1979. Also in 1979, which I think is fantastic, they released one called the QL10, which was the Casio Quick Lighter. It was a calculator with a cigarette lighter wrapped around it. I love that. Yeah, because the company started out with this fingering for smoking cigarettes. That's they had brilliant. calculators that could dial phones for you, chirp a little sort of dial tone. They had football games, which were also calculators. And that was when they were just releasing calculator after calculator after calculator. And the thing that really kills it in the end is first the computer when you have calculators and spreadsheets, and then finally the smartphone. But absolutely, it was the mid to late 70s, I would say, and the early 80s. That was the heyday of the calculator. As I mentioned at the beginning, I went down this eBay rabbit hole. A whole world I didn't know existed of vintage calculator mm. collections, vintage calculator mm. websites, museums. In the world of vintage calculators, what is the king? Because, I, I mean, for me, it's the VL tone. It's like, that was the holy grail, Will's VL tone. But if, probably not that. If you're a pocket calculator purist, I would say the thing that you want is the Buzzycom Handy LE120. Can you get those online? Buzzycom Handy Alley, I'm going to Google it. Yeah, this was interesting because it was one of the first, it was probably the first genuinely pocket calculator. So Texas Instruments had developed what they called the Pocketronic, which was actually more like the size of a large book. It weighed more than a kilogram. So your pocket had to be pretty sturdy for one of them. Buzzycom made this tiny little calculator called the Handy LE, which is about the size of a modern pocket calculator. And it was driven by a single silicon chip. And that was the thing that really made it possible Previously, you might have, you know, five or 10 or 20 chips collaborating to make it work. And finally, when you only have a single chip, that's when things start to get really small. So I would say that's the one you want if you can find it. Um, well, I'm looking, I've got it on my computer in front of me. I'm looking at a listener, if you're interested, vintagecalculators.com. Oh my God, this is a rabbit hole. It is very classy and I can't see one online, unfortunately. It might be too rare. In 1971, they cost £165, but I can tell you they're probably a lot more than that now. Oh, or a Sinclair executive developed by Clive Sinclair, in which allegedly one of them exploded in the pocket of a Russian diplomat, almost sparking a, an international incident. Well, there you go. How relevant. That's very noteworthy. Keith, I love chatting to you and I love your book. It's absolutely fantastic. Empire of the Sun, The Rise and Reign of the Pocket Calculator. You seem to be writing a book a week these days. <laughs> Listen, an absolute pleasure. I've really, really enjoyed chatting about this. Thank you for introducing me to my new money pit <laughs> hobby i'm seriously you know that pulsar calculator watch i'm seriously it's very classy it. have a look at the hp01 i think it may be okay. even classier hp01 a calculator watch yeah same era i think possibly even more classy thanks keith that's it thank you very much for listening Hope you're enjoying the show. Thank you very much for your company. Don't forget, if you are enjoying the show, to tell everyone about it. And as ever, if you've got a suggestion for a topic, email us at patented at historyhit.com and we will put your brilliant idea on the list.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch, download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play, and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes, or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code Patented at the checkout, you get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.